0: If you like what you hear, come and visit me at youtube.com slash tank and see this content in all its glory. Every great one loses its child, therefore it seeks a surrogate. The mighty formless Odin was no different. Therefore, Odin impregnated the Thumerian queen Yarnum in ancient times, resulting in the birth of the infant Mergo, who would be taken into the care of another and kept alive by any means. Mergo, who would be summoned by the school of Mensis, and would act as the anchor for a terrible nightmare. The Moon Presence was no different, therefore it tricked the hunter Garaman into acting as the host of its hunter's dream. An unknown motivation provoked this. The Moon Presence desired the continuation of the Yarnum hunts, but why? We could not say, at least not yet, good hunter. The one called Kos, or some say Kosm, was no different. Therefore, when she was killed at that fishing hamlet and her body desecrated by fledgling hunters from Bergenworth under the order of Master Willem, she cast a mighty curse of blood upon all current and future Yarnamite hunters, that they would enter into the hunter's nightmare upon blood, drunkenness, or upon death, to eternally suffer the violence of their trade. But the Great Ones can't be blamed for what's happened to Yarnam. The Great Ones themselves are neutral or sympathetic when called upon. The downfall of the city comes from the meddling and cruelty of mankind itself. They had but themselves to blame, partaking in blood, experimenting with insight, commissioning the hunts, a series of choices that took things from bad to unsustainable. The city was dying, but that didn't stop some outsiders from seeking out the healing blood of Yarnum. When one such person entered Yarnum on the eve of a hunt, it was out of desperation for that cure, the healing blood. And they met an eyeless man in the garb of old hunters that was all too happy to oblige, sign the contract, take the transfusion, and just rest. The dreams that come with that sleep are ill omens of things to come. Will this fledgling hunter fall into the blood-drunken beasthood of the night? The gore-drenched beast that they could be approaches, yet this hunter repels it, or is it something else that sends it away? Little messengers appear next, crawling up the body of the immobile hunter, did they save them from the Call of Beasthood? Or did they sense a strength within this one that would keep it at bay? But oh, you found yourself a hunter indeed, little messengers. And it's time for their journey into the nightmare of Yarnum to begin. That old man really didn't do much to help out this new hunter, did he? Upon waking, they've no weapons, no armor, no clue as to where they are. No one else is here. All they can do is get up and take a look around. There is a note that says, seek pale blood to transcend the hunt, But what this is, or what it means, that's entirely unknown. Just down the stairs from this strange clinic is yet another sign of trouble. The first beast the hunter will encounter. Without armaments to confront it, what is one to do? Fist-fight it to death, take their chances, running away wildly? Well, the hunter bravely approaches, without an ounce of fear or self-preservation. The beast takes notice, and though the unarmed hunter valiantly tries to take down the monster, with not a single moment of panic or doubt, They're violently torn apart in the clinic. But death is not their finality, no. They awaken anew within the hunter's dream. Many hunters have come here before this one, and many yet overlap with their time in the hunt. This is merely this particular hunter's journey through these lands and these plains. While this idyllic workshop and small hills of flowers is lovely, this doesn't really make sense yet. There's a mannequin figure, a doll of some kind, laying peacefully beside the path leading into the workshop. It looks so lifelike, yet it's clearly not actually so. In the building lined with shelves of books and workbenches is an elderly man in a wheelchair, but this isn't the eyeless man that gave the hunter the transfusion, no. This is German. He greets the new hunter, welcomes them to their new makeshift home. German doesn't try to push exposition on the hunter. It's something he almost assuredly has done thousands of times over. And a thousand times over again, it's proven useless when those hunters die in the hunt. So, Girman just tells this new hunter to get back out there and kill a few beasts. If the need arises, they can come back here to enhance their weapons and their skills, take a breather from the hunt, rest a bit. Small messengers bestow gifts upon the hunter before they depart. A primary weapon, and a gun, now off with them. There's a hunt to be had, and the night is young. It's truly hard to tell man from beast on the streets of the city. If the eyes of the hunter are to be believed, then practically every being on patrol is infected and must be put down. In the very least, they're all hostile. Though they call the hunter a beast as well, so who's to say what the truth here is? It's just a bloodbath on the streets, a free-for-all, and evidence abounds that this has been going on for a very long time. Chained coffins line the streets, debris and wreckage are all over the place, humanoids burning and crucified, monstrosities hung up like trophies, There are still some who possess their wits, however. Faintly glowing pink lanterns mark houses that still yet hold people who are hiding from the hunt, and who will respond when their door is knocked upon. Few responses are cordial, though. Most are mocking or outright antagonizing. Imagine being outside on the night of a hunt. Unfortunately, the hunter meets their next death atop the Great Bridge of Yarnham. It certainly won't be the last of their deaths, but through the hunter's dream and the moon presence, physical death is not truly their end. They're taken back to the hunter's dream once again, to collect themselves and prepare to head back out. This time though, there is a special being waiting for their return. The doll has woken up and promises to act as a helper to the hunter during their journey. Collected blood echoes from fallen foes can be brought back here, and the doll will channel them into the hunter, granting them greater strength for the journey ahead. Each step will be more difficult than the last, and the aid of the doll will be paramount for the new recruit. The little messengers too will aid and serve as they can, with the sale of armor, weapons, and items that they have collected. They'll relay messages around the city, and they'll operate lanterns that can teleport the hunter to and from the dream. And though this be a mostly solitary journey, that's not to say that the good hunters can't join in jolly cooperation with one another. In fact, the hunt may even demand it. For the night is long, and the nightmares it brings are most cruel. An elder hunter answers their call, promising to guide and aid them as needed throughout the night. All they must do is ring a special bell, and they will answer. But now, the hunt resumes. Upon the Great Bridge, an unpleasant surprise rears its head, a cleric beast. Once this was a high-standing official within the Healing Church, but through the overconsumption of blood, they became this, much like Lawrence did long ago. It's by grace that the severity of this form was saved for a few and not a common fate for all who served in the Healing Church. This cleric beast is a nasty bit of work, but a good test of readiness for what's to come. Its life is ended, but there's no celebration to be had. As soon as the deed is done, it's time to move along. Exploring the alleys, sewers, and streets of Yarnum brings the good hunter to a few lantern-lit windows. A particularly vile old woman is behind one, demanding to know of a safe place she can go, which... they will keep an eye out for one, but Cleric Beast was preferable to that old lady. Of special note is a young girl sitting at a window. When the hunter goes by, she gets their attention. She says she recognizes their smell. Assumedly, she means the smell of a hunter. But she's not worried over another hunter, no, she's worried over her mother, who left their house on the eve of the hunt to search out the girl's father. Seems the father went out to join in the hunt, but he never came back, and the mother was terribly worried about him. Whenever her father got caught up in the hunt, a special song from a music box would bring him back to his senses, but her mother forgot to take the music box with her and neither of them have come back. This girl is so worried for her poor mother. Promising to find her mother brings the girl some relief, and the good hunter isn't without a conscience, so this too will be something that they search out in their journey. The girl gives the hunter that music box to deliver to her mother when they find her. The hunter will be able to recognize her by the red jeweled brooch that she wears. Night is closing in when another obstacle presents this one more worthy of fear than any beast on the streets of the city. It's a blood drunk hunter caught in the throes of the hunt hacking at the bodies of his prey. This one's name is Gascoigne, a once holy man from a foreign land that found himself in Yarnham joining the hunt. Father Gascoigne fought alongside the healing church as a hunter for many years. He partnered with another elder hunter named Henrik for many years before leaving the church, but now he's fallen into madness. He can't differentiate man from beast anymore. He, himself, is becoming feral, so it's time to put this father Gascoigne down. It's different, fighting a trained hunter. It's more visceral than a beast, more personal. Gascoigne speaks to the hunter, he taunts them, he questions them. He's a true spectacle with a weapon, and his age has no bearing on his speed, In fact, it would seem that his age and time in the hunt has made him all the more brutal, never mind what his lost senses add to the fight. But by chance, that tiny music box that that girl in the window gave the hunter chimes as they dance, and it throws Gascoigne off his balance. If just for a moment, he hesitates, he holds his head, and then he lunges back at the hunter. At the halfway point, Gascoigne completely collapses into the calling of Beasthood and transforms. A moment of panic to slow him down, that tiny music box melody can still halt him, even if just for a moment, to provide precious recovery time. Ending his life does not feel like a victory. Gascoigne's tragic end serves as a reminder of what will eventually befall all hunters, even the oldest and mightiest of them. By some sort of grace... Perhaps his roots in a foreign land and faith saved him, because Father Gascoigne will not fall into the hunter's nightmare. The blood curse of Koss will not take him. Instead, Father Gascoigne will have a peaceful death. And nearby, the hunter finds something that they vowed to search out, the girl's mother. Her corpse is in the arena of Father Gascoigne. Who killed her? It's not immediately clear. It could have been her husband or the maddened civilians that patrol the street. Her death certainly could have been what set Gascoigne over the edge. Regardless of what one chooses to believe, this is a tough reality that must be reported back to their daughter. A promise is a promise. And the hunter will not keep this hard truth from her. They cannot stay to comfort or protect the girl. They will leave her to her tears and move on with their hunt. Hopefully that girl will survive the night on her own. Beyond Gascoigne's arena, past a lock, gate, and up a ladder, is a new section of Yarnum, the Cathedral Ward. Specifically, the hunter finds themselves in a real-world haven of sorts, called the Odin Chapel. Within, a strange fellow welcomes the hunter and tells him that they've been burning incense to cover the smell of anyone in the chapel. The Odor wards off the beasts, making this a safe place to send any survivors that the good hunter may find along the way. There is that old woman back in central Yarnum, but she can wait. She was a nasty piece of work, so she can be patient on her own for a little while. While it's safe inside the Odin Chapel, outside is quite a different story. There are Themarians somehow patrolling the grounds alongside Yarnamite hunters. How the Healing Church managed to bring these hulking humanoids into their service is a bit of a mystery, but they are cut above the civilian hunters on the street. A bit further into the Cathedral Ward, a member of the Healing Church named Alfred is sitting in contemplation. He started out as a traditional hunter too, but became a member of the church and now calls himself a protege of Logarius, the old leader of the Executioners, that led the assault on Castle Kanehurst long ago. Alfred wears the garb of the Executioners and is quite friendly to the hunter upon approach, even offering combat tools to them and insight into topics like the Healing Church and Bergenworth. But not even Alfred knows how to reach Bergenworth, as the road is only accessible if you know the password. There's no clear direction for the hunter to follow, so... Choosing a road and prancing along brings them to an undercroft of sorts, to a long-neglected path. The little messengers host a lantern nearby a door with a note posted. This town is long abandoned, hunters not wanted here. This is Old Yarnum. The powder keg hunters once hunted here, when the ash and blood disease broke out and the old district was consumed by a new sort of beasthood. They burned it when it couldn't be contained, after so many of the powder kegs had been killed in the streets. Those that survived protect this place to keep other hunters out, believing that the victims of the Ashen Blood are still people that deserve to be protected. The Healing Church deigned them heretical and traitors of the church. The one who greets the hunter is called Jura, an old hunter with no interest in entertaining new arrivals. Jura gives the hunter plenty of warning, telling them to turn back or they themselves will face the hunt. And to his credit, Jura doesn't take action against them immediately. He gives this fledgling hunter plenty of time to evaluate what they're doing before he opens fire with a gatling gun. Jura is not mucking about, he's dead set on keeping outsiders away. And there are a few powder kegs left who will assist him in this, so this hunter too will call for aid in putting this maddened hunter down. With his dying breath, Jura still tries to reason with the hunters that they're not just beasts that they're killing, they're people. The journey through Old Yarnum is rough even by hunt standards, but there is a beauty to it. It's not as horrifically brutalized as Central Yarnum, as though it was captured in time and the hunters are trespassing here. At the bottom of the seeming pit that is Old Yarnum, there's a church. Outside, the corpses of hunt victims burn on crucifixes, and that strange church hunter Alfred awaits a summon for jolly cooperation. So, what's in the church? Well, What's inside is a testament to the cruelty brought upon Old Yarnum, A blood-starved beast that is riddled with ashen blood. Its skin was cut from its body and draped over it like some horrific shawl. It's blood used by other residents to feed off of. Now it bleeds the poison of that awful disease. It's malnourished and maddened. Its emaciation doesn't slow the creature down, though. It's faster and more aggressive than even Father Gascoigne, and it lacks any sense of self-preservation. It's quite a pitiable creature. Mercy is putting it down and putting it out of its misery. This place is so, so sick. Beyond hope and beyond reason. With the death of the blood-starved beast and most of old Yarnum cold, the hunter decides to return to the Odin Chapel in the Cathedral Ward to take another path into the city. Back in the Odin Chapel, everything seems fine. No beasts in the church or anything. There are a few paths to choose from, but this time the good hunter goes straight ahead and starts climbing yet more stairs, guarded by a number of Themarians. All building and residences seem to be abandoned at this point. It's viciously quiet save the patrols. A set of great doors are at the top of the stairs and the Themarians on the street dare not enter this place. This hallway is lined with statues of the amygdala, and in the main part of the building is what looks like a grand cathedral, one of the great structures built by the Healing Church when Lawrence was just beginning to take power in Yarnum. It's empty and hollow now, a shadow of its former self, but a single being sits at the altar, seemingly in prayer. She may look small and vulnerable, but this is the vicar of the Healing Church, Amelia. She holds in her hand a pendant, something handed down from Lawrence himself to serve as a reminder to future leaders of the church to honor their old adage. Fear the old blood, but, well, the time for that warning has long since passed. Vicar Amelia is in her final moments, as a human. The comfort of that old pendant cannot keep her here, beasthood is calling, and as a powerful member of the church, her transformation will be violent, surpassing even that of a cleric beast. But even as this, Amelia continues to hold in her hand that pendant whilst she violently strikes out against the hunter in her cathedral. Her legs don't quite carry her weight effectively, but the danger of Amelia is in her thrashing slams and swipes. She screams constantly, her range and reach is staggering, and even in Beasthood, she's damn intelligent and watches the good hunter with knowing eyes. The fall of Vicar Amelia marks the end of her kind. A death blow to the Healing Church. There's just nothing left now, and perhaps good riddance. Upon the altar that Amelia prayed at sits a relic of the past, the head of Lawrence. He died in beasthood put down by the hunters of old, and here sits his skull, as though it were a holy thing to be worshipped. When the good hunter touches it, there shown that departing between Lawrence and Master Willem, when Lawrence took the old blood and part of Kassa's umbilical cord into Yarnum to start the healing church. Master Willem issues his once people a very clear warning, fear the old blood, but he didn't listen. We know what became of the city and how Lawrence's life ended, but now this hunter knows of that old adage, fear the old blood. They know the password that will get them to Bergenworth. What will they find there, in that old college? Whilst trying to check down where the road to Bergenworth is, the good hunter remembers something. That terrible old lady... And the safety of Odin Chapel. There could be other survivors around Yarnham, so while out on a stroll, the hunter keeps an eye out for lit pink lanterns next to doors. And by happenstance, they come across a medical clinic belonging to a woman named Yosefka, directly attached to where their journey began, in fact. Yosefka seems nice enough. She says that any survivors the hunter may find in the city would be safe with her there if they would just direct them on how to reach her. So there are now two safe locations to send survivors that the hunter comes across. Very good. They decide that the old lady can go to the clinic. Yosefka seems capable enough to handle someone that unkind. She probably has sedatives, and so, well, you know. The hunter meets another soul while traveling through the city. A sex worker named Ariana, and she is the kindest person that the hunter has met so far. And when she asks if they know of a safe place to send her, it's an easy choice to send her to the nearby Odin Chapel. Whilst still bumbling about looking for the way to Bergenworth. The hunter finds themselves on the complete ass-end of correct directions. They find themselves in the Hemwick Charnel Lane. Once upon a time, the executioners destroyed what laid here when they marched upon Canehurst. All that resided near the route to the castle were slaughtered and strung up as a testament to their cruel dedication. Now the dead of Yarnham are brought here to be burned. Mass corpse piles litter the tiny roads. Far too many tombstones rest here for how many would call this awful place home. Those that do remain weirdly laugh and dance about the mass graves in dead piles or attack outsiders on sight. At the end of the lane, the hunters find the head figure of this macabre little village, the Witch of Hemwick herself. She's taken a cue from Master Willem and lined her garb with eyeballs. To what end? I couldn't say, but the Witch is able to summon mad ones at will, who attack anyone who has the insight to see them. The witch proves to be a frustrating opponent that requires searching for and chasing her down. And killing her doesn't really change anything in Elaine either. It was just the hunt, carried out for the sake of the hunt. A strong opponent of no consequence that just got in the hunter's way. Other hunters have been killed by her in the past, so perhaps that's justification enough for murdering the Witch of Hemwick. Regardless, this is clearly not Bergenworth, so the hunter returns to the Odin Chapel to once again try and find the correct path out of the city. And there, they find the sex worker, Ariana, dressed in some very fancy clothing. She graciously offers the hunter some of her blood, as a thanks for helping her find safety here. And, interestingly, her blood is something that the Healing Church would call forbidden. What that means, though, is not yet clear. Not yet clear. While checking about, something sort of unexpected happens. Well, two things, actually. First, during some masterful platforming, tucked away in a spot that by all rights should have never even been noticed, the good hunter finds a weird door. On an upper level of the Odin Chapel, there was another path to take that didn't lead to Bergenworth, but instead to the healing church workshop. Long ago, this is where hunters of the church would gather to work out their gear, share information, perhaps rest and refuel a bit. Now it's been overrun and left to decay, but under the Healing Church workshop, down some scaffolding and broken down stairs is that weird door. And inside is the abandoned workshop of German. In the Waking World, this is where his hunters would have come to gear up, train, and prepare for hunts, but now it's empty, though very well preserved, protected from the madness outside. Here remains the first trial run that German made at making his Maria doll. It was a very unsettling fixation that he had on that very unusual German, but also of note is part of an umbilical cord. This is what Lawrence and German used so long ago to first beckon the moon presence. It was left hidden away here after that terrible encounter, lost to the world, but now in the possession of a new hunter that has no idea what they've just found. This is one of three parts needed to make a complete umbilical cord, but for now, the hunter will just hold on to it. At the bottom of the tower that the hunter has been descending is a shortcut of sorts, a door leading back to old Yarnum. But then... A whoops. a, A big whoops. A kidnapping of the hunter. Death isn't uncommon out here, but through the hunter's dream and the power of the moon presence, there's no escaping the hunt for those chosen to participate, but... This time, well, buts. When the hunter starts to awaken, they're being taken someplace, but it's hard to tell through the fabric of the bag where. When they fully come to, they're in a jail cell within Yahargal, the Unseen Village. This was the playground of the School of Mensis, before their whole ritual mishap involving the stillborning of their brains. This jail is where their victims were brought after being claimed by those snatchers, where they would await the school's horrors. Though the School of Mensis technically kinda no longer exists, those in service to them still search out and bring living beings here to Yahargol. A terrified woman is just beyond the jail cells, shaking and in prayer, begging for deliverance from this place. To comfort her, the hunter dons the apparel of a church official, and the woman responds to this. In fact, she's almost desperate to believe that the hunter is from the church. She doesn't question anything about their presence or their attire. Her name is Adela, a nun of the healing church. Before she was caught, she was with a group of survivors, but they're all gone now. She asks if the hunter perhaps knows of a safe place that she can go and hide. Adela doesn't seem sickly or unstable, so to Odin Chapel she will go. With the nun safely on her way out of the unseen village, the hunter can continue about their business, taking out a dark beast that reeks of the old corruption of Loran, cutting down the old servants of the school, but ultimately they find their way blocked and must return to the cathedral ward to search out Bergenworth. Alas, another dead end, but perhaps this will be a fine place to return to in the future. The path to Bergenworth is finally found. It was closer to the chapel than one might have thought. The gate out of the city laid at the bottom of a long stairwell, decorated with an odd assortment of statues in different states of worship. The password, Fear the Old Blood, grants the hunter passage, courtesy of a long dead gatekeeper. Reaching Bergenworth requires traveling through the Forbidden Woods, a mucky, snake infested hellhole of misery and humidity. And there are still some locals about. Residents of the forest village that have quite a lot in common with their neighboring Yarnamite cousins. They're indistinguishable from each other, save the occasional reptile fusion. Long ago, scholars, students, faculty, people hailing from all across the land traveled these roads to Bergenworth. But now it's dangerous for even the most hardened of hunters. It's difficult for two hunters. Hard to believe that there are survivors out here. Or perhaps they're thriving. When the hunter chances upon one of them, this suspicious man is enjoying a hearty meal of. looks like a well, nine year old boy, rare. But he doesn't attack the hunter like a feral beast. Instead, he talks to them. He's rather grateful that the hunter took down a nearby frighteningly large beast. And the suspicious man asks that the hunter knows of a safe place that he can go. And, well, because he seems sickly and overfed, the hunter directs him towards Yosefka's clinic rather than the chapel. She has all those medications and probably has at least a couple guns. She should be able to handle this fella no problem, but just to make sure. The hunter takes a little detour back to the clinic, just to make sure that no shenanigans have taken place, and Yosefka assures the hunter that all the humans are taking well to their treatment, and she needs more of them. (laughs) Great. Back to the swamp hell. Nothing to worry about here. At the end of this delightful labyrinth of a road is an interesting surprise. Three shadows of Yarnum. But these aren't Yarnum as in the city, no. These are the shadows of the ancient Themerian queen Yarnum, but why would they be here? Outside of Bergenworth? Does that mean that the Queen herself is nearby? But why would she be here? Oh my, the intrigue grows. The ill-tended to path beyond the Serena does lead directly to Bergenworth. Finally here after all the searching. In its prime, this place must have been a wondrous sight to behold, a true place of higher learning. But now, those that do remain are eye-covered amalgams left twisted and cursed. The interior of the building is covered in what looks like cakes and vats of eyeballs, everything a late-era Bergenworth student would need for success. But there's not much more than a handful of creatures about. The final sane student of Bergenworth jumps the hunter on the second level of the school, a sad end to a life once full of potential. And outside, overlooking the lake on a serene balcony all on his own, is Master Willem himself. His senses have long since left him. All he does now is look out over the lake and the moon above it. Upon the hunter's approach, he does acknowledge them and he points to the lake or perhaps the moon above it. He doesn't say anything, though. That ability has long since abandoned him. Knowing what they do of Master Willem and his life... The hunter decides to dispatch him, out of contempt, and to make sure that whatever happens next, he cannot continue his life's work. Master Willem's life will end here, and may he find justice for his deeds in the next one. Taking their cue, the hunter plunges into the lake. Within the moonside lake rests Rom, the vacuous spider. Once a scholar of Bergenworth that ascended to be more akin to a great one, Rom who now holds back the Nightmare of Mensis, who conceals the terrible ritual that they held. But Rom itself is mindless. It's an unintelligent creature, unthinking in its actions. The reasons for why the Great Ones do the things that they do is unknowable. And all this combines to make Rom something that cannot be reasoned with. The Hunter does not know what Rom is, what it has done, or why. The Hunter is merely here to hunt, and this Great One now stands in their way. Though Rom is passive at first, the first strike against it ends that neutrality. Though called a spider, Rom is not quite so. But the creatures that it calls to its aid are, and they viciously defend Rom against the hunter. And at first, Rom itself doesn't really act against the hunter until they deal a large bit of damage to it. Once it teleports away and realizes that this is a real threat against it, Rom will joy the fray of attacks against the invaders in its home. Remember, Rom is vacuous, a bit dense, not the sharpest tool in the shed, it's a slow learner. It's not until its final stretch of life that it really amps up its power against the Hunter, but by then, it's just too late. The children of the so-called Spider are cut down, and Rom itself meets a violent end. And with Rom's death, there's nothing to hold back the Nightmare of Mensis. A figure in white stands in the arena now, it looks like a woman in a dress, her outline becoming more apparent as the Hunter approaches, but she doesn't move. She doesn't really seem to care about the hunter's presence. Her attention is turned towards something far more important. This is the ancient queen, Yarnum. The school of Menses beckoned her child Mergo with its ritual that created the nightmare of Menses. Mergo is someplace close, but she cannot reach them, so she weeps and she waits. Now, under the falling red moon of the new nightmare, with the ritual secret broken, the city of Yarnum is about to change once again, and it's the presence of an amygdala, clear as day, in the cathedral ward that makes this change apparent. The survivors within the city are impacted by the descent of the red moon as well. Ariana has become viciously ill and can no longer give the hunter blood. Adela the nun just laughs to herself in the corner of the chapel. Yosefka no longer answers her door. And where the good hunter now finds himself is at the head of Yhargil, where they once were held prisoner, but now they can see the full glory of the torment the School of Mencius brought upon this place. There are amygdala creatures all over the buildings now, regardless of insight. All can see them. Some of them are hostile to approachers. Those that still hunt in the streets glow a peculiar red, and the sky itself looks as though it's ushering in an apocalypse. The old hunters and kidnappers that serve the school have come out of hiding, attacking any who proceed beyond the jails, and they do so in groups. The creatures deep within the village are cosmic and sickly with beast blood, a whole new kind of threat for the hunters to challenge. And there are thousands of bodies fused into the walls and the stone, probably former villagers and school scholars that fell victim to the ritual of Michalash and the head figures of Mensis. This whole district is a monument to their unspeakable cruelty and indifference. Thousands of lives lost in a mere moment when they beckoned Mergo and that new nightmare. But while this is a horrific place, it is not the actual nightmare of Mensis itself. No, this is still Yarnum. This is just the influence of that nightmare spreading now that Rom is no longer holding back. Beyond once locked gates, the cooperating good hunters come face-to-face with the creation of the School. An amalgamation of the residents of Yahargil fused into this sickly failed Great One called the One Reborn. Remember, there was nothing too taboo, nothing forbidden in the School of Mensis. They tried to create their own Great One, their own Rom, and this was that failed attempt. In disgust and outrage at this, the Hunters ignore all else within its arena and cleave at the monstrosity until it ceases movement. This thing was a pox even on Yarnum. it couldn't be allowed to exist, and perhaps those that were fused into it can now find some semblance of peace in Oblivion. Just beyond where the One Reborn fell from the sky are the pathetic remains of the School of Mensis. The men and women that attempted that ritual to summon a Great One who instead made their own brains stillborn. And at the center of this room, in a seat of importance, is Mikalash himself, though he has seen better days. His body was protected from death during that ritual, but it looks like maybe he didn't take very good care of himself, because a withering mummy is all that's left in his seat. Interacting with Mikalash's body takes the hunter to a new place, a lecture building. A small section from a place of learning, perhaps part of the School of Menses, perhaps part of Bergenworth. It's inhabited by scholars that were brought into the nightmare so long ago, and at the end of a hallway is a direct pathway to the nightmare itself. Climbing the road to the foreboding mansion far off in the distance truly sets the mood for what's to come. This place reeks of forbidden power and madness, so again, Two hunters will proceed here, in jolly cooperation, ensuring the safety of one another. This estate is called Mergo's Loft, the new study hall of the School of Mensis that leaves a bit to be desired. Just approaching it causes a buildup of frenzy, but the source of that frenzy can't be seen from the ground. This is where those whose minds survived the ritual ended up. Their waking world bodies have long since rotted, but here, in this plane, they continue on. Much of the infrastructure of the Loft is collapsed or in decay, leaving most of the way up to be done via weird cage lifts and elevators. In the middle tier of the Loft, the good hunters find Mikalash himself. We don't know what he was like in life, but he's a raving lunatic in the nightmare, praying to the long dead cost to be granted more eyes and then running away like a weird oiled up loot goblin. Mikolash is a test of patience. He's highly mobile and enjoys being chased through the halls of his libraries. As the host of the Nightmare, he's maintained much of his old self, at least physically, but he's so much more. While he may seem to be a frail scholar, Mikolash can call from beyond abilities that bring him toe-to-toe with the Hunters. And when things get a little bit too slap-happy, Mikolash will flee. He takes off running through the halls, starts wailing and talking about being granted eyes again like Kost did for Rom, but as facts are only half straight at this point this man is truly out of touch with reality. He is most dangerous in his final stretch of life within the Nightmare, perfectly capable of one-shotting the hunters if they're not careful around him, but when Mikalash is brought down he cries once more. He's waking up now, he'll forget everything, but what Mikalash's mind will find in the Waking World is a husk, his own corpse shriveling up in the ritual site of the school. How unfortunate. Killing the insane scholar unlocks the way forward. There's still another height to climb in this nightmare, but… In the distance, a baby starts to cry, but what is a baby doing here? Why does it echo about the towers of the loft? It intertwines with the screams of nearby beasts and faintly the cry of a woman. This is familiar, though. They heard this cry once before. After the death of Rom, it was that woman in white. The good hunter has far to go and much to learn. Soon they will meet the one who holds safe the infant Great One. Soon they will learn why the Queen weeps. And soon they will know why the Nightmare of Mensis is a far cry from the blasphemy of the Old Hunters.